You know, I got to tell you, I've been in the Christian faith now, uh, really been in the faith for about 30 years. And every time I stop and look at a new angle of the scripture, I not only learn something in my head, but something in my heart changes. And this is after three decades of interacting with God's word. You can never have enough. You can never grow enough in God's word. There's always growth to be had. And so I know the apostle Paul knew this when he was teaching in Romans, when he was instructing his Roman church. I love the idea of Romans chapter 16 being greetings. You see in Romans chapter 16, all these names, as Lindy drew attention to a minute ago, you see all these names of people from all over the world, and you've got this long list of people that, uh, that Paul wants to greet as a part of his letter, and at the same time, you find this little paragraph nestled kind of right in the middle of all that uh, greeting that Paul is doing. You find this paragraph right in the middle that encourages them to be telling the difference and to pay attention to what they're listening to and learning as they continue to grow in their faith. See, that, that the whole faith in Jesus back then for the Roman church was a relatively new thing. These guys were all learning, and as they were learning and growing, as they were learning and growing, they were encountering false teachings, teachings that would take them off the true path of following Jesus in the real world. And as they were doing that, Paul was having to instruct them along the way, here's what you look for in the good news of Jesus that tells you when teaching is true or when teaching is false. We know that teaching is true if it is based on the word of God. We know that teaching is true if Jesus said it and if Jesus lived it. We know the teaching is true if it came from those who were ordained by Jesus as apostles, people who were set apart to continue teaching the things that Jesus taught before he ascended into heaven. These are things that as we pay attention to them and we learn them, if some kind of false teaching comes along in our life, we begin to tell the difference between what is false and what is true. So even nestled in the middle of all these greetings at the end of Romans 16, you find this warning. And I just wanna read it one more time for you, uh, just to kind of add on to what Lindy did a few minutes ago. The scripture says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Now, where's that teaching they have learned coming from? It comes from Jesus, right? All the scriptures of the Old Testament, all the law of Moses and that old Jewish heritage, the Israel heritage and the story of the children of God, all of that culminates in the birth, death, resurrection, and activation of his church of Jesus Christ. And so when you ever wanna know what it is that's true versus what's false, you look back at what Jesus taught and still teaches to this day through his word. The three key concepts we're gonna take a look at, and we're gonna read through the rest of the passage here and pull those out today and digest them a little bit more. Uh, as the scripture says, keep away from folks who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. 
For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Now, what does that mean? We're going to dive in here a little bit more and just take a look. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, this is not evil people. It's naive people. People who simply have not learned to be able to tell the difference between what Jesus teaches and what is false. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with being naive. It just means naive, and that's all it means. It means that maturity and growth is needed, right? Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This kind of looks back to when uh, the idea that, that uh, the serpent is going to be crushed under our feet, the serpent of old, um, namely Satan who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And he ends that whole paragraph by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So let's dig in a little bit more and dive into that first phrase there. The first phrase is cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. The idea kind of becomes this, that when we grow in the faith and when we begin to see what, what's right and what's wrong and begin to discern that by the power of the word of God, we run into this idea of the stumbling block. Now, every once in a while in the scriptures, you'll see Paul kind of admonish his church and, and really encourage and lift them up with the idea that if you are free in Christ, if Christ has set you free, be careful not to enjoy a part of your freedom that could cause a stumbling block in the spiritual growth and maturity of someone else in the faith. For example... In our church, we believe that drinking alcohol is okay. And on some occasions, it's actually quite appropriate and enjoyable, right? It's okay for us to consume alcohol. We believe that we can consume alcohol in moderation. And as long as we can keep our wits about us and know when to cut off those numbers of drinks, then we can have clear-headed conversation with each other, love each other, encourage each other, and lift each other up even if we've had a beer or two. We say that that's okay. However, if we find ourselves in the company of someone who is an alcoholic and knows it, and is also a follower of Jesus, we have discernment in that moment to say, I need to think about the needs of that other person before the wants and desires that I have in the moment. And so in that moment, I might abstain from having a beer or two because I know my brother might see that as a stumbling block. If I have that beer or two, even though with the best intentions of fellowship in the name of Jesus, it might place a difficult situation in front of my brother where he is tempted to do something that will take him off the path. Does this make sense? It is the concept of a stumbling block. And so Jesus teaches about this, and mainly the idea, mainly the idea is that we are aware of what's going on around us as we're enjoying our freedom in Christ. Now, Jesus was talking with religious leaders back at that time, and as he was talking about the kinds of teaching they were doing, he would find that they were teaching people in the faith for the wrong reasons. And let's take a little bit more of a look at that. 
The idea becomes this, that stumbling block becomes so big when we mislead people in the faith, either on purpose or by accident, that it can actually be so big that it blocks the road of their growth in the faith and stands as an obstacle in their way. And when Jesus was talking with the religious leaders of the, of the day, he basically would, would roll out the idea just like this. He, he got upset with them and said, I've had it with you, you're hopeless, you religious scholars, you Pharisees, frauds you are. Your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. You refuse to enter, and watch this, and won't let anyone else either. The reason being is because the Pharisees believed and taught that it was up to you to perform spiritually in order to be in God's grace. Now here at Trinity, we talk a lot about the idea that God's love doesn't come to us by our earning it, right? You're gonna hear that almost on a weekly basis here. And the reason we keep saying that, even though technically we might have grown and matured beyond that idea, the reason we keep saying that is because the number one temptation we might find out in our everyday lives is to believe that even in a little bit that that's not true. That maybe I need to do something else in order to get better into the graces of God. And the truth is that this is not a new phenomenon. This is an old, old story that goes way, way back to ancient Israel and the keeping of the law. See, the idea was that Satan, our great enemy, places in front of us the constant temptation that we need to own and be responsible for our own salvation. Whereas Jesus died for us and rose again to give us the idea and to lead us in the idea that when God tells us what to do or what not to do in life, that's a part of his grace. He died for us on the cross. He rose again from the grave and took care of the penalty of our sin from now and forever. But he doesn't just leave us there. He promises to lead us and to go before us. And that's why when we look at Trinity's mission, looking, living, and loving more like Jesus, we're not just doing all that for its own sake. We're doing it because God has given us someone who we can follow. He's, he's given us a God that we can touch, a God we can hear, a God we can hang out with. See, God's who you can't touch, who you can't be with, who you can't hang out with and hear from personally are not gods at all. They're false gods. There is only one God who came to earth in a way that you and I could understand and embraced us with the full force of his love by giving us his only son. There's only one God. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, what he was not saying is I'm one among many. He was saying, I'm the only way. And so when we are tempted to teach each other, even if it's inadvertent, if, even if we don't mean it, if we are tempted to believe and teach each other that there's something in us that God requires in performance in order to be acceptable to him, this is where we must step back and say, no, that's not true. God has found me acceptable, lovable, 
and worth sacrificing for just because he is God and I am not. So Jesus was fiercely defending this idea with the Pharisees and just like Jesus, Paul picks up that baton and runs with it. He says very clearly to his church, whether you come from a Jewish background or you come from a pagan background as a Roman outside the church, in either case, you are acceptable to God and loved. And in so, we wanna make sure that we don't fall privy to the idea, the false idea that we need to earn who we are in God's, God's sight, excuse me, already. So when Paul's getting into this idea of smooth talk and flattery, what he's talking about is teachers in the church who would come along at a certain spot in Christians' lives in the Roman church and would begin to teach just a little bit outside of the truth. There'd be enough truth that was being taught where people would look at that and say, yeah, that sounds right, but then they might take a departure. They might start requiring people to do things that the older religions would do. They might start requiring people to make sacrifices Telling, that if they, telling them if that they didn't make those sacrifices, like being circumcised, like the ancient Israelites, or doing some other kind of ritual, like going to a, a, a temple to worship in the old pagan ways, they might be tempted to tell people that if you don't do these old rituals, then you're not acceptable to God. And people might, in their young faith, fall prey to those false teachings. Um, here's a similar idea. Have you ever heard of snake oil before? So this idea came from uh, a guy named Clark Stanley, and this was in the mid to late 1800s. He was the one who developed snake oil after studying the effects of the oil that comes from the Chinese water snake. The Chinese water snake is special and in China, its oil would have been extracted because it was rich in omega-3. And you guys know omega-3 oil is good for you, right? It could be an analgesic, it could be uh, that it you know, kills pain and helps you to feel better in your joints. This oil would have been harvested by the Chinese for some time and used for medicinal purposes. And if you look at the oil of the Chinese water snake, you can prove by science that it actually has medicinal value. Well, this guy Clark Stanley in the mid to late 1800s got a bright idea. He said, well, what if I use the resources I have available here in the ancient West, uh, he was a cowboy by trade, what if I round up as many rattlesnakes as possible and take oil out of the rattlesnakes and sell it for its medicinal purposes? He was called the rattlesnake king. And so he began to develop a elixir or what they called a liniment and sell it as snake oil because of the good reputation that Chinese snake oil had because of Chinese immigrants here in the United States using that for medicinal purposes. He decided, I'm gonna try rattlesnakes. And so he put together an oil, a liniment, and began to sell it. Well, you know the tough part is something like 40 years after he began selling his patented snake oil, uh, there was a government agency that actually did scientific research on his snake oil and found out that in fact, there was absolutely no 
medicinal value whatsoever. There was even camphor in the snake oil that he sold, which you may know from Vicks Vapor Rub. It even smelled like medicine. But if they drank it or put it on their skin, there was no medicinal value. So to this day, when you use the word snake oil salesman, what does that bring to mind? It brings to mind a fake. And the fakeness of that actually comes from a reality that was truthfully medicinal. The Chinese water snake and its oil helped and served generations of people in China. But when you take that idea and twist it just a little bit, take it off kilter, take it off its axis just a little bit, adjust the type of snake and its oil, and try to sell it to make money instead of actually providing healing, then you've become a snake oil salesman. This is the idea that Paul was getting to here. He was talking to folks that under the guise of the truth, they were actually selling people false goods. And the false goods hinged on the idea that somehow, some way, we still need to earn our way into God's good graces. This is not only before we come into the faith, but even after we've come into the faith. So friends, we are called today, even in this day and time, 2,000 years later, we are called to remember and fiercely defend the idea that even if someone doesn't know Jesus at all, Jesus still died for him or her. And that it is simply faith in that that saves us, not works around it not the earning thereof by what we do or say or think. And that's why the Christian life is so powerful and that's why it's so good. We know the difference between a Chinese water snake and a rattlesnake and in the church, by the way, this is the Chinese water snake. He's a good looking fellow, isn't he? We know the difference between true gospel and false gospel based on the idea that we cannot earn the good grace of God and that that is actually part of the good news. That way God receives how much of the glory for you and me, all of it. It's 100% pure, pure remedy, pure glory. He receives it all. So in our day and time, if there's any temptation whatsoever to receive the message that you are somehow on the hook for earning something, what do you do with that message? Look at it and have pity for it. And then gently and respectfully correct it. No, my friend, we don't decide to follow Jesus. He decided to save us. We don't accept Jesus. He accepted us. And that's it. And that's all. But wait, Mike, what if, what, if, uh, what if I fall off the wagon? What if I go back to those old sinful ways? My friend, the truth is still true. You don't accept Jesus by your behaviors. Jesus accepted you even when you fall off the wagon. And by his acceptance of you in the moments when you're in the dirt after having fallen off the wagon, 
He earns your love again and again and again. He is a God who never leaves nor forsakes. He is serious about love. He's serious to the point of death, the death of his son. So let's look at what Paul says as he continues on. He says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. So as you travel, as you step through your life and go day by day through your life, understanding that God is gonna be there with you and for you, and that it is, it is his love that earns your devotion and your obedience. The reason he wants to earn that in you, the reason he wants to earn that in you is so that you'll be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The reason is number one, because he is sovereign. He is God and King, and he deserves our devotion. But number two, he knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for you. He made you. He died for you on the cross. He rose again for you. He leads you in this life. He steps before you and guides your words, your thoughts, your deeds for one reason only. And it's not because he wants to see you perform. It's because he desperately, utterly, and completely, sacrificially loves you, all of you. This is what we call grace. Have you ever thought about what grace is? Grace is this really cool concept. It's the idea that we receive something good that we don't deserve. We receive something good that we don't deserve. We've been graced with something that we don't deserve. And the idea is God gives us grace through Jesus. The scripture says that we deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. This is what the Bible calls Hades, Sheol, or hell. This is a punishment for the wicked in the old language. This is a place where people go to suffer for eternity. But God has called us out of that future life of suffering and a penalty by giving us Jesus. That is grace. And he's graced all of humankind with the gift of Jesus. Humans do have the power to say, no, thank you, God. I don't want your Jesus. And in doing so, they stand condemned already, the scripture says. But the good news of Jesus is available to all people. And that's why when we walk in our daily lives, God uses our ordinary daily lives to transmit the message that Jesus died for not just the church, but for who? The entire world, past, present, and future. He died to cover all sins, past, present, and future. And then there's no uh, false snake oil that's being sold here. Only good news. Good news that heals and saves. Good news that acts as true medicine. And then as we come into the faith and grow, we begun, begin to understand that God's grace has various forms 
God's grace grows beyond the basic idea that Jesus died for me and rose again from the grave. And it starts to look like this. Look at what Peter says. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now, have you ever thought about God's grace in your life in this way? God not only pours out grace on you in the beginning to save you from sin, but he also pours out grace on you from that time forward so that you can take that grace that you've been given, which is in the form of giftedness, spiritual giftedness, and give it to someone else. And as we give it to someone else, it draws attention to who? Not to me, because how, how much of my salvation is based on what I do? None. But who does it draw attention to? To God, because he's the one that is 100% responsible for our salvation, isn't he? We've proven that, haven't we? Right? And so the grace that pours out in us and through us in its various forms, that's as individual as the thumbprint you have on your thumb. There is no one else in the world who has the same fingerprints as you do. There's no one else who has the same fingerprints as Jahweh. No one else in the world has the same fingerprints as Rachel, as Cassie, as Tim, as Rob, as Jenny, as Crystal. Nobody else has those fingerprints. Nobody else has the spiritual makeup that you have. And God's grace flowing through you is as individual as the prints are on your hand. And no one else can look like that. Even if somebody else looks better than you spiritually, that is a falsehood and a lie from the pit of hell. There's only one you and that you that you are is God ordained. You alone can be the you who transmits the grace of God in its form as it comes through you. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? The word special is kicked around a lot these days. I wanna use the word unique. There is only one you in the kingdom of God. And that you that you are is God ordained and is a vehicle for his grace from now until eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel like getting up in the morning. When you have a day that you're facing that's rough, you can go back to that basic truth and remember that God's hand is on you and that your spiritual fingerprint is called for and called out as important and critical and successful in the eyes of God. This is how Paul closes his letter, by naming people, people that he loves, people that he's served with and calls out by name. Sometime go back through the book of Romans and look particularly at chapter 16. Look at all the names of people that Paul calls out. And look at the fact that he puts this paragraph right in the middle of them all. Did you ever think that maybe all those names are examples of what he's done in the faith that is true and good and right? And that he doesn't want anything to upset that apple cart 
or to take those people off the path of his good grace, grace that is true and real. That's why he surrounds that truth in this last paragraph with the names of real people who've been saved by the grace of God and are instrumental in God pouring out his grace in their world thereafter. These are real names. They're people other than Paul. They're people who live the steps and the feet, the service and the hands, the mouth and the words of Jesus. And you are counted among those who are listed there. Always remember as we close Romans, who you are and whose you are. You are you by the grace of God and you are you to carry the grace of God. That is so amazing. So would you pray with me and let's thank God for what we've heard again today and have heard all these weeks of the summer. Dear God, thank you so much for who you've made me to be. Thank you for your word that comes and changes my heart. And God, even if I've not really gotten that idea until today, the idea that my heart can change, let this idea of you claiming me as your own, specifically, individually, uniquely, amongst a, a, a chorus and a sea of other voices, but me by name, thank you that you called me and poured your grace out upon me. And thank you, God, that from this, this moment forward, your grace comes into me and through me so that others may come to know you and knew, know who they are in you. God, I, I am tempted to jump off the track sometimes and to follow parts of our religion that teach the idea that we are still responsible somehow for our salvation. I thank you for saving me from that falsehood again. And God, I ask that if I'm ever in the moment where that idea comes up, that in gentleness and respect, you will help me to correct it for the sake of the souls of all who hear, including my own encouragement. God, work in me and through me by the power of your spirit. Give me the thoughts to think and the words to speak and the actions to serve in. In your name we pray and together we say, amen, amen. and amen.